Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Aaron. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about mental health apps uh, that can help you enjoy your life more, also apps for providers to enhance their clinical practice. And we're very happy to have join us Dr. John Torres. Dr. Torres is director of the Digital Psychiatry Division in the Department of Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, a Harvard Medical School-affiliated teaching hospital, where he also serves as a staff psychiatrist and assistant professor. He has a background in electrical engineering and computer sciences and received an undergraduate degree in the field from UC Berkeley before attending medical school at UC San Diego. He completed his psychiatry residency fellowship in clinical informatics and master's degree in biomedical informatics at Harvard. Dr. Torres is active in investigating the potential of mobile mental health technologies for psychiatry and has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and five book chapters on the topic. Dr. Torres, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get you. You're basically uh, I, I would say you're probably the leading expert on mental ha- health apps. Is that is that fair to say? I, I, I think we, we've scored. We scored. I'm just saying to our listeners, we've scored qu- uh, quite a, a celebrity here. <laughs> Uh, but uh, no, no, we, I, we, I agree, Aaron. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with Dr. Torres from uh, seeing a couple of his talks at national or one at a national conference APA where he is the app advisor to the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and then one at a more local California conference. Yeah, so I, I can't wait to tap your knowledge here. Yeah, go ahead. I think I would say I've learned from a lot of great people, especially John Lowe, who was the program director uh, at the Applied in Psychiatry, I think. He'll love that shout out. Hey, Dr. Lowe. That have kind of helped get the space ready for junior people in the field like me to kind of learn and do more. But certainly, again, John Lowe and Riverside have been really a driving push in this and even getting the APA to think about mental health apps. And the reason that there was kind of room for me to start doing this work was because of John Lowe making those connections. They, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I kind of want to talk and start off with talking about the pandemic, the impact of the pandemic. We've seen a rise in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts. Is it, can mental health apps uh, help us now more than ever? And, in, and if so, what way? So it probably depends who you're asking, right? If you're going to ask a company, they could have helped you before the pandemic, and now they can help you even more. I think if we sit there and look at the evidence and say, what can a mental health app do for you today? Can it make you feel less depressed? Can it make you feel less anxious? Can it make you feel less stressed? The answer is probably what right, we default to a lot is it depends what app, who you are, what condition, and how you use it. So it's a tricky one that we can unpack. Yeah, you brought up the kind of industry, uh, uh, kind of commercialism. What do, do most consumers don't uh, fully appreciate about these mental health uh, targeted apps that are marketed to them? 
So I think we'll start by saying these mental health apps are tremendously exciting, right? The potential to increase access to care is unprecedented for psychiatry. The practice right to give resources in the palm of people's hands is fantastic, right? This is something the field Mm -hmm. has never had before. It's something that cardiologists really can't do to the same degree, right? Renal can't do this to the same degree, right? Surgeon, your phone does not have a little scalpel come out of it as of yet (laughs) and do it. So in some ways, psychiatry and psychology are on the cutting edge of this whole new field of digital or, or, or mobile health. And with any right new field that's accelerating rapidly, what is the boundary, right? It's always going to be very interesting, right? Where is it getting into pseudoscience? Where is it dangerous? Where are we being too slow and not embracing innovation? And I think it's kind of in that gray area that, of course, we have to have industry partners, right? We, we need industry to help build this stuff. They're going to be critical partners, and we're going to see good partners, we're going to see bad partners in that. So how does the commercialism differ? We, you know, we, we hear talk about some of the incentives that cause corruption within the pharmaceutical industry. You now have an industry um, getting involved in medicine in a totally different way. Things can be addictive in a different way. Uh, how, how does, how does, what are the kind of the, the potentials for corruption here? There really is no effective regulation in this space. The FDA actually in COVID called out psychiatric software, what we're called software as a medical device. And the FDA said, you know, overall, we think there's low risk for harm. So we're going to decrease the barriers to making medical claims that would generally be regulated. So actually, our field has been, again, singled out for having less regulation. And as a news point, again, without endorsing a product, Happify Health in July, so last month when this podcast aired, announced that it had what it's called kind of a, it was making medical claims about whatever Happify Health offers. And they were doing this under this new kind of relaxed regulation. So in the future, we plan to file for FDA regulation. We plan to build that evidence, but we are allowed as of today to make claims that would suggest benefit without going through the approval process. So So we're seeing kind of these claims coming out today that we don't yet have the evidence for. And so let's say, sorry, go for it, Tosh. Well, I was just going to ask the FDA has approved apps already. Is that right? They've, depending on how we're counting, they've approved between five, six or seven. They've approved a handful of them. What's interesting is some of the first ones they approved though were actually computer programs. Right. And they said, well, it worked well in a computer program and an app has a screen, it, it can get approval here. So I, I think they were also learning on the initial approvals as well of what it means. So we actually don't have too many products that were again tested on an app where the pivotal study kind of happened on a smartphone is being used on a smartphone. So in essence, it also may be going, well, we probably have a movie we liked and was the book the same? Was it different? Maybe, maybe not. How well do parts of CBT translate from a person to a computer to a phone? These are probably open questions. I think any listener can think of therapy, right? And some people are going to like therapy more on a phone. 
Some people want it more in a computer. Some people want it more in person. There's not a right or wrong, but it's probably a stretch to say it works equally the same for all people across all devices. And conceptualizing a randomized controlled trial for an app, I don't even know where to begin with that. You know, it's, it's a little tricky, but there was a term that we have written about called a digital placebo effect. And the idea is let's pretend that Aaron decides to make his own company and he does a study of his own brand new app. And he gives everyone in the study gets his app and $100 and a therapist. And the other group gets put in a black room with no door. And he says, who's happier? And the group that got $100 (laughs) therapist, the app is happier. And the group that was locked in the dark room is unhappy. And Aaron then goes, my app is effective. In a randomized trial, I I was better. So I I think the point of this kind of facetious example is, what could be a digital placebo? So could you give an attentional app that says, hey, here's a psychoeducation tip. Here's kind of a diary to fill out. So you can certainly give people the digital equivalent, just like right, we would demand whether you, you would say, what is the evidence again for a new medicine that's coming out of therapy, right? You want some degree of a comparable control group. So we don't have to go into details of how, how these studies are done, right? But we certainly know that we don't want to compare apples to oranges and say this one is green, so it's different. We we know that. How do we uh, as a how does a consumer judge the usefulness of an app? Because this is my thought. I mean, I I've, I'm kind of uh, uh, getting up there in age, and I'm not uh, sophisticated enough to have plowed through all these apps and to know which app is going to work with um, my clients. Yeah, I, I work at the counseling center with young young folks, and so. I, I, my thought is like, well, if a consumer goes to their practitioner and it was me, I would be like, uh, I'm not sure between those two apps that you're giving me, which is better. So what is there something that you can tell consumers that can help them select an app that will help them? I mean, again, it's going to be a hard one to answer of what's the better of the two, right? Just like we're not going to say medication X versus B is better, therapy Y versus C is better for different people at different times they'll respond to it. So it's been tricky with the American Psychiatric Association. It's, this is accessible to anyone we'll talk about. You don't have to be a psychiatrist. You can just be someone in the public. You can be interested. But if you just Google search American Psychiatric Association or APA app evaluation framework, with the APA, we've put up a lot of free educational resources about what to look for, what to kind of keep your focus on, kind of important questions to ask. Again, the APA is not in the business of endorsing any app, saying anyone is good or saying that anyone is bad, but there's a lot of good videos and resources you can do. More to Aaron answer your question directly, we took it perhaps a step farther and we were lucky to get a charitable donation from the Argosy Foundation. And we built a website called mindapps.org. It's completely free. There's no conflict of interest, at least that we're aware of. But mindapps.org, we've rated about 500 mental health apps across 105 dimensions for every app. So every app gets basically a 105-point checklist of yes or no. And the idea of mindapps.org is we're, again, not here to tell you what app is good or bad. But you say, show me all the apps of all the privacy features that work on an iPhone that have cognitive behavioral therapy and give a coach. And what it'll do is I'll say, here's the ones that match your search. 
you say, well, you know, show me all the ones that offer acceptance and commitment therapy and are free and are in Spanish. You know, probably show you nothing that comes back because that app hasn't been built. But I think what we like or our team about mindapps.org is it's really a more evidence-based way or a little bit more objective-based way to understand what's out there. It's not going to tell you what one is best for you, but it's a lot better than saying what is a five-star app or what app has more downloads. There's been piles of prior research that, you know, an app that has five stars, that just means it's more popular. Just like you can find doctor's ratings that have five stars, so be it. An app that has more ratings has a larger advertising budget. That doesn't mean it's going to give you a higher quality or safer product. Or things that I saw was that the cheaper, the, the price correlates to how popular it is or what its ratings are. Um, but one of the, thank you for showing or telling us about mindapps.org. I hadn't heard of that one. The one that I heard about was the cyber guide put out by OneMind. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. It's a, I read that it's a nonprofit organization that essentially is very similar to what you're talking about. So I think there's different approaches to evaluating apps. One Mind and CyberGuide perhaps has some overlaps. What's different perhaps is they have a score. So they'll eventually give a, a numerical score for different features of the app. And I think in part, what our approach has been is it's very hard to score an app, just like we don't score medicine, say it's a 4.5, this medicine, <laughs> we don't score therapy. What's also tricky about those websites is if you look, they're often not up to date when it's a complex scoring system, we use expert reviews, you can get stuff up there, but can you keep it current and up to date? So we've committed to keeping stuff on mindapps.org updated every six months, which we think is good. Wow, yeah. There have been prior studies that looked at these websites and they kind of showed that it could be almost over a year old, some of these ratings. And you really don't want to be giving people, let's just say stale ratings because apps update, right? Just like they're, they're right. dynamic. They're, they're not like a medicine, they're not like a therapy. Right. So is there currently a healthcare system that is doing more than just offering subsidized apps? Are there people that are prescribing apps? And if so, how are they monetized? And how is adherence tracked? Yeah, so I, there's three examples. Kaiser Permanente, which is largely based on the West Coast, is prescribing apps as part of treatment for their mental health patients. They actually put out an interesting piece of work about how they did it. And they use part of the APA framework as what they did, but they made their own library. So Kaiser is doing it. The Veterans Administration is doing it as well, the VA. You can actually, as a member of the public, as a clinician, anyone use VA apps. They're focused on veteran conditions, but they have some great apps that can help any of anything. And they're completely free. We've actually built our own clinic at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where we just integrate apps directly into care. And we actually just had a panel where I was speaking of the Kaiser person doing apps, going to VA in our clinic, and it was fascinating just sharing notes on how to integrate these and how it works. I just wanted to just, clarify something that I had said earlier about what I was reading online was that the cheaper the app, the more likely it's going to have positive reviews. It's a very, exactly. It's also the more, the cheaper the app, you wonder how is it sustaining itself? Is it having to kind of siphon off your data to right. do it. it. It's a little bit unknown. Again, it doesn't mean, again, free apps are bad. The Veterans Administration, the VA, I can 
endorse those because it's a not it's it's the federal government. There's nothing being sold, but EPA puts right, out yeah. really good apps for free, free, free with no hidden costs. But generally, if it is free, you should wonder how it is who's supporting it because if it's too good to be true, it probably is too good. <laughs> to be true. It's like any miracle right. here, right, in the work that we do. Yeah, I remember that was one of the big takeaways from your talks. Um, as as providers, when we're recommending apps, we need to be aware of the privacy and data management of the apps that we're recommending to our patients. Exactly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about mental health apps with Dr. John Torres. Uh, yeah, about uh, picking up for it, Tosha, about the ethical practice. Yeah, if you if you one of your patients was using an app or two apps um is the ethical practice to to dive into that to to explore it, to make sure it's consistent with your treatment um uh, and and the issue of are they selling their data and their health information to this company to be used for whatever purposes they want to use it for if you consider apps in part like supplements right we, we would want to ask our patients and know are you taking any over-the-counter medications or supplements Right? E- even if they're not FDA endorsed, it's something we want to know. We want to understand what people are doing. So I, I think in mid to late 2021, we really do need to be asking folks we're working with, tell me about what digital apps or supplements you're using, right? It, it's most people, at least depending on what papers or numbers you read, I would say at least of a third of people have tried it. They may not bring it up when they meet a therapist, a psychiatrist, psychologist, because again, maybe like going to a primary and say, I Googled my symptoms. I think I have cancer. People would perhaps be embarrassed, but I would say you are more likely to be right to not if you say, patient, tell me about what apps you've used. And it could be interesting to explore wider using them. Heck, you may learn some really exciting apps. I'll say one of the most interesting apps a patient told me about was one called We Croak. And I've what we croak. Oh yeah, we talked about that one on a previous yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we croak will remind you that death is imminent. And for this person who said, hey, this helps me live in the moment. That's something I would probably not endorse. <laughs> Again, we're not gonna endorse any apps, but you'll learn interesting things that people are happy to share about apps and you can learn about why that's important, what it means, are there right. different apps we would recommend. So it's it's a good question to ask in 2021. So in the future, we might find ourselves documenting in the same way that we document that uh, informed patient that their supplement um, has little data behind it and may be harmful. We might document informed patient of the potential interactions between the WeCrope app and the Brainify app that they are using. Yeah. Patient agrees to the risks. (laughs) We we explained that. There could be benefit, it's unclear. There could be some privacy risk and if they wanna try it and we're gonna check back on it, right? That would be acceptable, right? To say, look, let's talk about basic risks and benefits and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So what's, uh, I'm sorry, go for it. No, go ahead, Alan. So what's, what are some, I'm, I'm sure you've, you know, walking down the street, you've thought of some scenarios and different daydreams of, of how this could go horribly right or wrong. Do you have any interesting uh, imaginary things that you can share with us that come to your brain about freak scenarios with these things? I mean, there's always, I think, when you talk to perhaps mental health professionals, I I think they instinctively have a fear going, is the field going to exist? Will robots and artificial intelligence do all of mental health? (laughs) 
And there was a quote by a very famous internal medicine doctor and informaticist called, well, is it the quote basically when any doctor that could be replaced by a computer should. This was Dr. Warner Slack who recently passed away. <laughs> but the point of this quote is there's nowhere close to even the best artificial intelligence programs coming close to replacing any doctor, therapist, or psychiatrist. Again, the marketing may look fancy, but think about IBM Watson for cancer. It's kind of just disappeared. Well, and- the radiology apps are doing well. I, on the, I mean, I think they saw it, right? We have like a few uncomfortable laughs, a few uncomfortable silences <laughs> with this <laughs> as talkers with uh, some of us with some debt. But uh, um there, I, I actually saw something on NPR that was they someone had written a book where they actually assessed each profession's likelihood um, oh, to be absorbed by robots. And, and and radiologists were fairly high up there. And indeed, they it yeah. has gone somewhat to I mean, computer reads, I think, in some cases, I don't want to say, but they're very good anyway. Um, but psychiatry was listed out of not just medicine, but almost all the professions as the least likely to be taken over by robots, which, which makes me very happy. <laughs> anything, the field will expand because technology will help us extend the reach, reach new people, give them more care. But again, we've seen that really the way this technology works is to supplement and augment. That's what all of the data shows. We don't have anything we've seen up to 2021 that says, you know, an AI program can come close to diagnosing, an AI program can come close to prescribing. They're always kind of, if the papers make these wild claims, it's usually a very kind of set up example to prove a point, but kind of in real world, high quality studies, we've seen that it can be a useful tool to partner and kind of extend. So if anything, we're gonna want more and more mental health professionals, we're gonna reach more and more people, open up more populations and go, oh my gosh, we need to train even more people. So I think it's the opposite. I mean, we've been using uh, workbooks in therapy for a long time, you know, Um, it's similar to that, but I just want to delineate a little bit regarding the expansion of access that apps really do provide. When you break it down, I mean, for people in rural areas who don't have access to a therapist or psychiatrist, physical access, or maybe because of their depression, they're not motivated to get out of their home or get out of their bed and they can access an app in bed or lack of funds to get healthcare, right? You can get the free apps like you were talking about, or even just the hesitancy to speak about their mental health with a professional because of stigma or because of, you know, it being a trigger because of their trauma. All those things, um, apps take care of that. No, they definitely connect people to care in ways that we can't. Where they sometimes fall flat, though, is they sometimes don't sustain engagement. Again, we all know that behavior change is hard. If any of us have ever tried to, well, gaining weight is usually easy. If we've tried to lose weight, that's harder. If we've tried to kind of overcome depression, anxiety, So sometimes apps can can connect us, they can be that kind of loose entry, but there's a lot of data that says if we don't give human support for an app as of now, it's really tricky. Even the chatbots don't really sustain engagement for too long at this point. So it's, again, that's why I think it may be that you're able to expand your practice, reach more people with apps, but you kind of need to be supporting them. What this can be though, if 
I go into kind of more nerdy mode if there's synchronous telehealth, which Please. is like video visits. We're talking together in real time on this podcast. Asynchronous, right, is you're listening to it not in real time. Mm-hmm. And the podcast can reach tons of people because it's asynchronous, right? You can download it anytime. You can listen to us at midnight talking now. So what the apps and mobile health technology may be, that may be the asynchronous arm of mental health, right? But we still need that synchronous arm, that human connection, people supporting it. But the apps are going to be this kind of asynchronous outreach that helps us kind of get there further or we can't always talk to every person one at a time. So it's that connection of synchronous, real-time, direct, and asynchronous, not real-time, that I think will come together to really be that expanded reach that you were talking about, Tosh. You know, picking up on the expansion aspect of these apps, it, it, what does the research show so far about uh, uh, sometimes, you know, with technological trends, low-income folks, non-white, marginalized populations can sometimes miss out on some of these technological advancements. Is there research out there? How's it going with those uh, populations? So what we're seeing is there's almost two digital divides we need to make sure that we conquer to make sure digital health is equitable. The first is, do people have ownership of devices that can connect to the internet? We're seeing increasingly, at least in the U.S., people do have a mobile device. It is less in minority populations. In rural populations, we're seeing a divide that there's not as good internet access and connection to these devices. And I think in some ways, we're beginning to recognize that first digital divide clearly, right, of kind of, do you have the phone and does the phone connect you to the internet? The second digital divide is a little bit more hard to define, but let's call it digital literacy. Do you have the knowledge, skills, and confidence to log on to a portal, to use the phone to capture video, to navigate app little menus and buttons and know what to do? And some of us have tremendous digital health literacy. I work with many patients who even have a computer science degree and masters in technology-related fields know far more than I will. But I also work with people that have never used their phone beyond just making phone calls in their smartphone. They've never actually downloaded an app before. They've never used their phone to take pictures, to, to remember things. And again, it's a lot harder to define digital literacy and who doesn't have those skills. But I think that we really have to focus on making sure that there's digital literacy open to all people. And that's going to be kind of the next barrier in making this work. It's not going to be fancy AR technology. It's going to be interesting teaching people how to use their technology. I think even there's a point to be made about a discussion to have about teaching future doctors about these apps and incorporating mental health apps into the clinical practice. I mean, at my, in my training, we didn't have any sort of, you know, didactic or lecture about it. Um, I accessed your you do our teaching Dr. Torres through conferences. Um, so I think that there's a lot more um, uh, self-directed learning that residents are engaging in or trainees are engaging in rather than being from the administrators or the um, uh, attendings in our programs. And I think it has to do with just like that digital literacy or interest, you know, willingness to engage in that clinically. So we definitely need the skills too. We started a course that I teach our residency of basically, we call it digital mental health equivalent 101. 
that's very popular. And I imagine in the next years, courses like that will spread because they have to. And it, it's just going to be important, right? As, as future leaders in the field, as clinicians, we need to know how to use the tools that are being developed. And again, it's good that industry is developing them, but we also need to have our own independent way to use them and evaluate them and think about them. What do you see as the next steps in the future? Um, we're, we're kind of um, coming to the end here. Uh, is there a role that government should play as far as regulating it more or making sure that uh, uh, folks, their, their information isn't shared or tighten up the security behind it or something like that? You know, it's always a balance that we want there to be innovation and you don't want to over-regulate innovation, but we also want to protect people's mental health information or privacy and make sure people are accessing effective devices. I imagine, again, with all of the rampant privacy issues and kind of all the often overblown claims of these apps, again, some do work well and that's to be celebrated, but I think it's clear that we're going to need some more regulation because kind of the hands-off attitude has really, again, led to this kind of marketplace morass where, again, I think mindapps.org is a good website. In essence, it shouldn't have to exist, but it does because it's really hard to get objective information and that's our best chance that we can't guarantee it's perfect. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about mental health apps with Dr. John Torres, Director of Digital Psychiatry Division in the Department of Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Torres, for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you all. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCRGmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>